Here we go. It may end up being a literal prop this morning. I've been down with the flu this week, so um, I'm used to being horizontal, not in this upright position. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is James. It's really wonderful to see you. Um, and you may have been here over the last couple of weeks and picked up on the fact that during 2019, we're committing to journeying through the book of Luke, focusing on the life and person of Jesus, and hopefully getting to a place where we come to see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. And you may be a bit surprised to find us in Luke 22 this morning, because last week we were just in Luke 2. Um, it's not a typo. It just so happens that rotors are such an algorithm that even Einstein would struggle with. Um, and I've had conviction to speak on this part of Jesus' life, this event, this evening, for a long time, and it fitted today. So we're going for it. Um, well, is this the most remarkable meal in history? For me, I would have loved to have been at the table in um, California when the first conversations were happening about Toy Story 1. And John Lasseter is scrawling on the napkin. Perhaps this meal is more remarkable than any royal wedding in Windsor Castle. More remarkable than bre any Brexit-induced food fight this Christmas. Or perhaps any breakfast meeting in the cabinet room at number 10 Downing Street. You see, for over 2,000 years, this Last Supper meal has been relived by billions of people. A monumental meal it is, and monumental is an understatement. And I wonder if any of us had been part of that mealtime discourse, what question would we have brought to Jesus? What things would we have discussed if we knew that our words would be remembered for millennia? And it's interesting, isn't it, that the, the disciples choose this moment to debate about which of them is the greatest. And, and there are lots of stipulations as to why that is, but I'm kind of like, come on, guys. Your dearest friend is on the verge of death. At best, this conversation is chosen horrifically and sensitively. You know, perhaps they've seen John resting on Jesus' lap as described in John's account of this story, and they're jealous. Perhaps John, in his sort of obnoxious, self-assured way, has pointed this out to them and has got everyone writhing. Perhaps they're pitching for team leader once Jesus is gone. Perhaps they're trying to distance themselves as far as possible from Judas and his foul betrayal. Maybe it's some kind of weird martyr syndrome. You know, they know that their lives are on the line here. Once Jesus is gone, they're next. And they want reassurance that their sacrifice will not be in vain and is of the highest value. Perhaps this kind of comparison is their way of saying, well, we've come to the end of the season. Who's out on top? Who gets the top marks? Who leaves the rabbinic school of Jesus? as top dog. 
But to be honest, in moments like this, it really doesn't look like they've learned much at all. One of their best friends who they shared life with and risked everything for every day for three years, and clearly the greatest among them, is imminently facing the most violent of executions and simply wants to spend time with them. He says at the beginning of the passage, I wanted to share this meal with you. I've been waiting. And they're stroking egos. It's kind of revolting. And in our Bibles in front of us, it says that they're having a dispute. Other translations will say it's a contention, a bickering, an argument. The Greek phrasing here, which I'm not going to pretend I know how to pronounce, actually means a love of strife rose up among them. A love of strife rose up between them. A love of strife and not of service. You see, here Jesus is showing through the breaking of bread, the pouring of wine, and as we find in another account, the tending to their dirty feet. He's showing them the sheer weight of his responsibilities and loving service. And they do nothing to console him. They're more interested in the illustriousness of their own titles than the weight of their Messiah's mantle. And don't get me wrong, I actually, actually think these early followers are remarkable people. And it feels like these moments in the gospel where they had these foolish discussions are included not as a norm, but almost as a literary device to point out what's obvious, what's plain. And on this occasion, it's that Jesus shows himself to be a servant and a sacrifice. And they miss it, opting for notions of grandeur instead. And boy, this is not the first time they got this wrong. You see, Jesus protects um, predicts his death a number of times and they react in all sorts of different ways, understandably. Um, but in Luke 9, and they do exactly the same thing. They deliberate over this topic of who is the greatest. And Jesus answers the question then. So why are they returning to it? It's uncanny. Jesus talks about dying and they create a scoreboard. But now the discussion seems to have hit boiling point. You know, the, the friend has just um, experienced the gravest betrayal and their capacity for kindness as he faces the death penalty has been completely usurped by their desire for self-promotion. Now, I realize we're spending this year in Luke to look at Jesus not to look at the folly of the disciples. Um, but I do think there's something in here just to, just to start with, is actually as we look at Jesus and how loving and how sacrificial he was to also recognize that human capacity to end up loving strife and not service. You know, we can sometimes talk about ministry, church, family, job descriptions, contracts, phones, homes, relationships, in terms of what we feel entitled to. 
and avoid the God-given responsibilities that we have that, peop- that we might feel are below us. You know, it's easy sometimes, isn't it, to retreat from those relationships that are most costly. Perhaps we don't give time to that needy, awkward family member or that friend who rides our patience. Or we can get caught up in consume, 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 because, you know, let's face it, we're exhausted. And so let's, let's invest in luxuries. They're our coping mechanism, and we've earned them, right? We've worked so hard in this life. Last year, a friend of mine was chatting to his mentor about struggling with pornography and lust. And this older gent talked about the fact that this struggle would probably get harder not easier. And this struck me. Why? In essence, he said that actually as we carry more responsibilities in life, the weight and the stress of those things, it can be easy to feel like you've earned the right to do what you want. Entitlement and bitterness can be fueled by striving, that love of strife or suffering particularly when suffering is endured over a long period of time. And it can build to the point, actually, like with my friend, where we feel entitled to the things that are below what we're made for, and then we're just adding to our problems. And the biblical truth is is quite different. It's not about entitlement, really. I mean, it is in some ways because we're co-heirs with Christ, but we're co-heirs by grace. Everything we have is an act of grace. And James 1, verse 17, tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. So the work I have, the role I have, the relationships I have, the bed that I've been resting in all week trying to gain my voice back, they are all a gift of grace. You think work, a gift? Well, Adam and Eve had responsibilities in the garden for stewarding it before the fall. And we're made by a God who works. And we're made in the image of a God who works. Work is a good gift and a gift of grace. Relationships. Well, God is in good relationship with himself. And he created us for relationship. And he created good relationship for us. Relationships are good. And responsibilities, well, we see that throughout Scripture, God allots roles to individuals and tribes and families, calling people to step out into particular fields, entrusting them with authority. Responsibilities are a good gift of grace. And sometimes these things can become broken and dysfunctional. But every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. And the relationships, the work, the responsibilities that we have are most likely there by grace and most definitely not there by right. Jesus knew this. He knew what grace looked like. And it's not here again in Luke's account, but in John's account of the Last Supper, He tells us that Jesus got on his knees, laid aside his garments, 
wrapped a towel around his knees, a towel around his waist, and tended to their dirty feet. Why? Why? It's not because he's entitled to the role. It's not because it has a good job description that comes with it. Good benefits. But Jesus did this because he knew everything had already been put under his feet. Knowing that he was from God and returning to God. Knowing his identity, knowing that he was loved, knowing that he had all power, all, power, all authority, all glory, all dominion. Knowing creation was his footstool, he reversed the roles. He proceeded to get low, prop up creation, and tend to her dirty feet. And he's a servant at his very core. Jesus served out of who he was. In, in Philippians 2, it says that in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It wasn't a simply, oh, I like being glorious and perfect, and I feel sorry for these people who aren't glorious and perfect, so, and they can't find the shoes that will keep out the sand, so I think it would be a nice blessing to just give them a little foot washing. What a decent favor that would be. It was because of who he was, being in very nature a servant, that he served. Servanthood was not a pity-inspired pity choice for a 30-year-old on an overextended gap year. Servanthood is at the core of who Jesus is. And in fact, his servanthood and his glory are indistinguishable character traits. His servanthood and his glory are indistinguishable character traits. Sure, there's a side to his glory and his power that might seem somehow very far from feet washing. But in fact, they're so closely connected. I mean, he holds a universe of over 45 billion light years in the palm of his hand. Imagine tending to that day and night. You think you got the weight. You think you got a mantle. There's a servant. He tends to 45 billion light years worth of galaxies. He tends to every tweet of every bird, and even the tweets of Donald Trump. He tends to it all. It's no small feat. If I had that job, I would retire on day one. I would retire on hour one. That's a mantle only he can handle. In the previous church I belonged to, I started out as an intern, and there was a lot of cleaning toilets, moving chairs, and helping with snotty kids, um, and lots of long days. And, uh, well, very little, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> very little responsibility for those first few months. 
But um, after a little while of being there, my boss came to talk to me about the church's plan to plant. And the chap who was heading up our 